you would uh, turn to Hebrews 3, please. We'll be starting in verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your your hearts, as in the provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do not always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom he was grieved forty years. Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place on, of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For Jesus had given them rest then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. Therefore remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that entered into this rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You may be seated. Good morning. Hey, if that didn't wake you up this morning, I don't know what will. But you know what? I like the volume. Let's, let's, I'd like to err on the side of, of, of too much as opposed to not enough. So that's a good thing. Hey, it's great to be back this week. I missed not being here last week. And appreciate Ralph jumping in last minute. Appreciate what the Lord did through him last week and preaching the word. Um, excited about what we have here before us in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, it's been two weeks since we've been in Hebrews but I'm hoping today to be able to catch everybody up to speed with where we've been 
Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. That's why I had Jacob read those verses this morning. They are connected uh, to one another in Hebrews 3 and 4. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to jump in here to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've called us unto yourself. And long ago you called a people by your name. And this people that we read about here in your word, they, they strayed from you. They turned aside from your commandments. They were a people oftentimes characterized as going backward and not forward. They rebelled against you and they forsook your ways. They bore your name and yet they disobeyed time and again. And Lord, we recognize all of that and we also see that you've called your church today to bear witness to your name. As we consider today what your word says... I pray that we hear clearly about your promise that still stands available. I pray that we recognize a rest that is ours for the taking. If we but turn from our wicked ways and believe upon Jesus and trust him with our lives. I pray that we would be quick to repent and quick to turn to you, God, by faith. And quick to walk in your ways of truth. Ways that reflect a life of repentance. I pray, Father, that you would remind us today that hearing requires action. And that you would stir within us our need to respond to what you have to say. Place before us an urgency to walk by faith and not by sight. And see that we leave here changed as a result of the foolishness of the message preached. And Father, I thank you for working through your word. And I pray for your power through your spirit to breathe new life in and among us. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. Augustine, in his book, The Confessions, begins by saying, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee. For thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. We know from the word that Jesus is the way. Jesus is deemed the door in John's gospel. He's the one through whom You enter to receive God's gift of salvation. There's one name, it says in Acts chapter 4. One name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And that name is church. Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. Without entrance through the door of Jesus, there's no salvation. And that's why I'm excited about what I've been uh, hearing over these past several weeks in particular. About July 7th. How many of you know July 7th is coming soon? Do you know what's on July 7th? And July 7th, it's the opening day for the Ark Encounter. You heard of the Ark Encounter? Creation Museum? Visitors from all over the world will frequent the Ark to see the real-to-life dimensions. This is not your storybook version. This is the real dimensions of the Ark The vessel that housed Noah and his family during the worldwide flood back in Genesis. Those dimensions are going to be put on display beginning July 7th. The reason I bring that up, did you know that the ark in the Old Testament is one of the best representations of salvation to come in Jesus Christ? Noah and his family members were saved by entering the door... Of the ark. God said it was time to close the door. And eight people were saved. While the remainder of mankind perished. Every living thing in fact perished outside. And back in the day people thought Noah and his sons fools for building an ark. And yet the ark served as the saving receptacle for one righteous man and his family. And today the door remains open. But it's not to enter an ark filled with animals. The door to enter is embodied in this someone better that we've been talking about in our series in Hebrews. That someone better is Jesus. 
He's the one who has provided salvation and delivered our souls from the pit of hell by sacrificing of himself in the flesh, on the cross, once for all time, canceling the debt of sin that we deserved and taking it upon himself. It's through the door of Jesus that we find true rest and need not worry about the challenges that come our way. And as I look out and see the families here today, I know and I can recall that each one has had certain number of challenges already in their life. Some of the challenges have had a more severe spike for some of you. Some of the challenges have had a longevity to them. What we're talking about this morning applies to every single one of us. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of a rest that is available to the listener. A rest. In fact, the idea of rest is a significant theme in this chapter. And from Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7. That's why I wanted to have Jacob begin reading right there. Really the scope of what we're talking about begins in 3 verse 7. Goes all the way to 4 verse 13. The rest from Hebrews 3 centered on Canaan rest. Promised land rest. But the rest that's alluded to today in Hebrews 4 has a greater significance, a longevity, if you will, attached to it. And I'd like you to be able to ask the question this morning, what does God in this text want us to know about his rest? What's God want us to know about his rest? It's a question I'd like for us to answer this morning from the text. So all of the points this morning that I'm going to be submitting to you are coming right from chapter 4 of Hebrews. Okay? I believe the first thing he would want us to know about this rest is that his rest remains available yet today. This is so important for us to get. His rest remains available yet today. That's verse 1. Look at it with me. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Hebrews 3, so a little context here to catch us up to speed. History lesson has been given in Hebrews 3 from the wilderness generation. Remember the wilderness generation, those were the folks who didn't enter the promised land of rest in Canaan. Why? Look at verse 19. It says, they could not enter in because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Then it says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. I want you to understand and catch the word in the text. Promise. The word promise. Who's behind the promise, church? God is. What do we know about God's promises? He always keeps his promises. They are always true. He always fulfills his promises. He always is good on his word. So while the promise remains available, that idea of remaining has in mind that it still stands. Some of your translations have that. Still stands. It still stands. Or another way to, to render that is the door is left open. The door is left open. This promise still remains for us to enter into his rest. And in light of the promise of God that remains available at our disposal, what's the text say? It says, let us fear. In fact, in the original language, the original language oftentimes what it does, it's really interesting and helpful, uh, truth be told. It will move the most important part of the verse to the front of the sentence. It's called a, to an emphatic use. It's emphasizing what the original writer is really wanting us to hear. In this case, this sentence in the original language actually begins with, let us fear, therefore. It, it's wanting us to understand. It's, it's putting forward right up front a warning. It's a warning. He's, he's letting us know there's a rest that remains and in light of that rest that remains, we need to fear. Let us fear. We ask the question, why a need to fear? 
The writer has intimate concerns for each one of his listeners that they may have come short of entering God's rest. Now the verb here for coming short has in mind to fall behind or to come behind. And the verb itself pictures uh, someone in, in company marching together with others who march faster than he can. And so he can't keep up. And so he falls behind. And the tense of the verb is interesting here and it helps explain what's going on because it's not only a present idea or a past defect, but really what we have is an abiding failure. An abiding failure. That's what we have here before us in the text. An abiding failure. And so when we look at the text and we see here in verse 1, this door left open, why our need to, 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 to make sure that we're not fearing. He goes on and he says, it's one thing not to keep up with others while marching, but the coming short that the writer is concerned about here in the text has in mind an abiding failure. You see, these new converts to Christianity, as he's writing, these are new converts, many of them, they know the Messiah, they know about the gospel, they've heard the truth, and they're on the hinge, remember, they're on the hinge of going back to these old ways of Judaism. They're also on the hinge of forsaking what they know as Christianity due to the outward persecution that's currently happening at the hands of the Roman oppressors. The text presents an open door left for the listener to enter through. A promise remains available to enter God's rest. And notice that even here in verse 1, it's deemed His rest, God's rest. Listen, his promise makes available his rest. One writer said that the danger is no longer described as falling away from the living God. Look at verse 13. That's what's been talked about in Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Talking about the falling away in verse 12, departing from the living God. The danger here is no longer being described as falling away from the living God. But more specifically, he says, of missing the opportunity God offers to enter his resting place. Friends, if we just step back for just a moment and ask ourselves, you know, you've been in a situation where maybe in your life you have missed out on an opportunity. Someone has provided an opportunity for you and you missed out on that opportunity. I want you to think about it now from the perspective of God having set forth for you an opportunity to enter into his rest. And one of the concerns the Hebrew writer has as he's putting forth here Hebrews 4 is that they have somehow come short. They've lost sight of the fact that God's the one offering the opportunity. And yet these are the people of God who, according to Romans 3, were the ones who had an advantageous position. They were the ones who'd received the oracles. They were the ones who received the word. They knew the word. And yet, at the same time, these are the ones who are on the brink of missing out on God's opportunity. The charge is something that we're to do together. Let us fear. Let us fear God, first of all. We're not to fear falling short, but fear God lest we fall behind and find ourselves like the first century Hebrews, having failed to abide in the Messiah. And his ways. And perhaps the let us fear is also submitted in light of the previous disobedience of the wilderness generation. It could be let us fear having seen the devastating consequences of sin on behalf of God's people. In other words, let's learn a lesson here, church. Let's fear. Look at what happened to the wilderness generation. His rest remains available today. And I believe that's the message of verse 1. Look at the next verse. We're going to see that his rest is entered by means of the gospel truth. Not only does it remain available, but his rest is entered by means of the gospel truth. For indeed, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, us and them. But the word which they heard 
did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, there's a couple questions that come out of verse 1. On what basis did the listener seem to come short of entering God's rest? And what is it truly to enter into God's rest? Those are a couple of questions that hopefully as you're reading come to the surface. The main point in verse 2 is to communicate that God's rest is entered by means of the gospel truth. God's rest is entered by means of the gospel truth. Notice the writer begins with something in common... Between two parties, us, let's identify the us, the us in verse 2 are the first century listener, Jews, right? And them would be referring back to what he's talked about in Hebrews 3, the Exodus generation. Us and them, two parties. And the text says that the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. This is very important. The rendering is such that it implies both parties were literally, here it is, the literal rendering, both parties were good newsed. They were good newsed. They heard the good news. Both parties. The Exodus generation experienced the what? The deliverance from Egypt, right? The hand of God directly leading the way through his servant Moses. And the Hebrew listener had been good newsed. Through the word of the Messiah. Remember chapter 2 of Hebrews 1 through 4. This Messiah who had spoken to them in these last days. So. What we see here in the text is the coming short. That he referred to in verse 1. The coming short that the writer is concerned about on behalf of his listener. Is not due. This is so important. The concern is not due to a proclamation problem. It had nothing to do with the gospel being absent with one group and present with the other group. Make sense? Two parties, they had in common the gospel preached. So what then was the problem? If it wasn't a proclamation problem, what was it? The text says, indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. And then the next word, but. Here's the differentiation right here. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So it seems that the writer's concern over his listener coming short of entering God's rest has to do with faith. Has to do with faith. It's not a proclamation problem, but a faith problem. They heard the word preached, but it did not profit them. It didn't produce any effective fruit in them. It didn't have the value that it should have had because the word heard was not mixed with faith. And that verb has in mind exactly what it says, to mix together, to mingle, to bring about a blend by mixing various items. O'Brien in his commentary says that physical hearing does not automatically result in a positive response. How many of your parents can associate with that? Huh? In fact, the word backs it up. Familiar passage, we know this passage. James 1.22 says that we are to be what? Doers. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then there's two other words right on the heels of that that we often leave out. Deceiving ourselves. See, when we become hearers only, we truly are deceiving ourselves. Because the word heard is not intended just to be heard. The word heard, preached, is intended to be acted upon. There's this mixing of faith that is necessary. This mixing of faith which this wilderness generation didn't do. The word preached to the Exodus generation was a word that was heard, but it was absent of faith. And faith is not wavering at the promise of God through unbelief, but being fully convinced. I love the phrase, being fully convinced that what God has promised, he is also able to perform. That's, by the way, is Romans 4, 20 and 21. One of the best definitions in scripture of faith. Faith's object is God. 
and mixing faith to the word preached. This is what it is, in large part, to walk worthy of the Lord. Here's the amazing thing. Listen to this. This is the amazing thing about what we're talking about here in verse 2. The wilderness generation had just witnessed... We're talking about Exodus 17. We'll go all the way back to Exodus 17, right? If you know your Bible, you know that that's just a couple chapters after the Exodus. The leaving of the people of God from Egypt, right? They witnessed the ten plagues destroying Egypt. They witnessed the exodus and the plundering of the Egyptians as they left. Remember, God said it was going to happen, and it happened exactly the way God said it would. They were going to plunder Egypt as they left, and they did that. They witnessed that. They saw God's hand in that. They witnessed God's leading through the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They witnessed the waters parting so that they could cross the Red Sea. They witnessed the waters returning and destroying Egyptian army in their entirety. They witnessed water from the rock They witnessed bread from heaven. Friends, there was no small number of events to witness the handiwork of God in their midst. And yet, they did not mix faith with what they heard. Remember 12 spies sent to spy on Canaan. Remember that? There's a little song. It says 10 were bad and 2 were good. What it's referring to is that there were 2 who gave a very positive, favorable result... Hey, God said, this is the land. He's given it to us. And there were 10 others that said, oh, no, 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 we can't do it. It's too frightening. The people are too big there. They're giants. The people chose not to mix faith with what they heard. They had come short and they had failed to abide in the one who had rescued them out of Egypt. How quickly they forgot. Do we do the same thing? How quickly do we forget what God's done for us through Jesus Christ? So the writer here is on one hand, he's pointing out a truth about the Exodus generation. And on the other hand, he's holding up a caution sign for the listener. The jury, he says to the people he's writing to, the jury's still out on you. This rest still remains available, but the jury's still out on you. What are you going to do with this? They didn't mix the word with faith. And they failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief. It seems like the writer is showing the trajectory that comes with not mixing the hearing of God's word with faith. Friends, it leads to unrest. Not rest. Unrest. And it leads to something worse, in fact, than not entering Canaan land. You see, the consequences of coming short of God's rest have eternal implications. They point to hell instead of heaven. Eternity with the devil instead of the Messiah. God's rest is entered by means of the gospel truth. Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, when you received the word which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You treated it as the word of God. Listen, which also effectively works in you who believe. This word of God effectively works in the ones who believe. We see also in Romans 10, that wonderful passage in 10, verses 14 through 17. It ends in verse 17 by saying that faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. Hearing by the word of God. Nothing has changed in terms of how people enter into God's rest. It's still the word of God applied to the heart of man by means of the power of the spirit, opening the minds of men to understand the truth. The gospel truth hasn't changed. Man instead has chosen to live a life of self-dependence and has forsaken on many occasions the necessity of adding faith to the word heard. Faith in itself, we need to understand, is a gift from God. Faith is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is how we're called to walk, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We're called to walk by faith as opposed to sight. Walking by faith means trusting God for each step that I take. 
It's holding out your hand to God's hand, trusting that he is able and willing to lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I'm afraid that the problem that's being described here in verse 2 is a problem that plagues many of God's people even yet today. It's far from a proclamation problem. Many of you have heard too many sermons. Is it possible for a preacher to say that? You've heard too many sermons. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. The problem isn't that you have a shortage of sermons to draw from. The problem seems to be that you have a shortage of faith. Think about the implications of not mixing faith to what you have already heard from God's word. Think about the volumes of books that some of you have read. Consider the number of conferences that some of you have attended. The number of workshops that you've sat in on that proclaim the gospel truth. It's all been good stuff. But you have activated faith on very little occasion. In short, the word hasn't profited you. One bit. You've heard years of sermons, and yet some of you remain a babe. Faith is taking God at His word and trusting Him enough to walk one step at a time. Faith is the absence of independence, reliance upon me, and a growing awareness of my dependence upon God for all things. Faith is taking a sermon and asking, how can I live this truth out in my life? Faith is is hearing the word and activating it in your life. It's taking the urgency of entering God's rest, which is what we're going to get to in verse 11. That's the call. That's the bottom line of the text. And it's crying out to God, even in faith, asking Him to help you enter in. His rest is entered by means of the gospel truth. Look at the first part of verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Right here, we see that His rest is for those who believe. Kind of gives us a little definition. Defines who His rest is for. He says it. His rest is for those who believe in Jesus. The entering into rest, one writer says, is a fact which characterizes believers. And the point of the writer makes uh, makes here is that faith is the condition of entering into God's rest. Another writer says that the group that enters God's rest is here in verse 3, defined. It is we who have believed. These are the people. Notice it doesn't say, we who have believed will enter, or we who have believed might enter, but it says, they do enter. There's, in a real sense, a present connotation here. They do enter. If you look backwards into chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 14, I believe that the we who have believed that do enter the rest of God is the same manner that's being described in 3, 6 whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, that persevering aspect. And verse 14, for we have become partakers and now are of Christ if we hold, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, persevering in the faith. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Now listen, the assumption here throughout Hebrews is that the one who believes in the Messiah, he is the one who keeps persevering all the way to the end. The end will show that he has entered God's rest, which ultimately points forward to a heavenly rest with the Lord himself. You see, the recipients of God's rest are those who have believed in this Messiah of the Scriptures. And the belief is assumed to be accompanied with active faith in God. Keep looking at the next few verses. In in the rest part of, of, 
of verse 3 through verse 5, we see that his rest is rooted in creation. His rest is rooted in creation. It still stands available. It's entered by means of the gospel truth. It's for those who believe in Jesus. And here forth, his rest is rooted in creation. Look at the text. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. The Lord swore in his wrath that the wilderness generation would not enter his rest. And that was due, we see in chapter 3, verse 19, due to what? Their unbelief. That generation died out in the wilderness. Those who do not believe were left out. But here, those who do believe, verse 3, do enter his rest. They do enter. The rest that's being spoken of here is obviously not referring, though, to the rest of entering a physical Canaan land. But something much greater, something with eternal implications. Verse 4 points to what verse 5 unveils. What's it unveiling? It's pointing us back to Genesis 2, creation. Okay? God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. The writer takes us backward to Genesis chapter 2 to point out that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And I believe God's rest, connected creation, is pointing ahead to a day when his people would join him in this rest. Since the beginning, God has had a rest in place. And he has had in mind to include his people in his rest. God's rest has been available since creation. It's rooted in creation. And those who believe do enter his rest. Those who, like the wilderness generation, choose to be the, what's called the non-persuadable type, the unbelieving type, and walk their own way, they are choosing not to enter his rest. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. We see that his rest is predicated upon a sure promise, a sure promise. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, Notice verse 6 is reiterating what verse 1 said. A a promise remains. Verse 6, he's coming back and he's picking this up. Really in many ways, the last half of 3, the verse 4 and verse 5 serve as a bridge. Okay, The first part of verse 3 is going to then now be picked back up in verse 6. It's really kind of helping us navigate through the text. And it picks up that same idea. Since therefore it remains that some must enter God's rest. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hopefully those are familiar words by now. He's talked about those already in Hebrews 3. They come from Psalm 95, right? Psalm 95 is written by David, moved by the Spirit. Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he, God, would not afterward have spoken of another day. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says that since a promise remains of entering his rest, what about God's promise of rest? I want you to look at the first part of the the clause here in verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. Why is it that some must enter it? See, asking questions of the text is helpful. It helps us sort through and have us, give us an understanding. Why is it that some must enter? Because God's spoken and his promises are sure. Okay? That's a very simple, basic, fundamental uh, position. That's why when God issues a promise, he's going to see that it happens. He's faithful to his word. What information is given then in the second part of verse 6? It says, those... Those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Remember, a promise remains. God's rest is still available and open to enter. And the wilderness generation didn't take advantage of it. Verse 7 then says, again, 
He designates. He designates. It has in mind to mark out the boundaries or to put limitations on or to define. He, he designates again a certain day saying in David or through David, the writer of Psalm 95, today. So we have another today that's put forth through David, the psalmist, after such a long time. How long time are we talking? After about 500 years from the Exodus to the time of David, God is again setting forth his promise. And here's another question. Why does God offer another today in the time of David? One writer says that the promise of rest had not been appropriated in the first instance with the wilderness generation. And in the second instance, the character of the rest was not final. The character of this rest was not final. So that the promise of the rest still holds good. God's provision of rest implies that some will enter into it. In Psalm 95, what it does is it holds open God's promise once again. It offers the same stipulations as those in the days of Moses... David's generation now is faced with God's word and called to learn from this wilderness generation. They're being confronted with God's word, mixing faith with what they heard. And Psalm 95, 7 through 11 is submitted here in Hebrews 3 and 4 to reiterate that even yet today, another opportunity exists for the people of God to enter his rest. He says if Joshua had given them rest then God would not afterward have spoken of another day. Listen, if God's rest was fulfilled and final in the days of Joshua, then there would have been no need for the promise to be reiterated in David some 500 years later. God's rest is predicated upon a sure promise. And God's word of promise is still available and still holds out purpose for his people and is left open for us to receive. You see, the sure promise that remains speaks to something very important about this God we serve, friends. It says something about God. And I think anytime we read the word, it's important for us to ask, what's this saying about God? Because it ought to be our heart's desire to get to know God, to know him. And I think one of the things that comes out here in this passage is we learn that God is a merciful God. He is a merciful God. Time and time and time again, he opens the door and says it's still available it's still open it still stands he's waiting remember the passage in 2nd Peter desiring that none perish but that all come to know his son and rest in Jesus look at verses 9 and 10 there remains therefore a rest for the people of God For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his works. We see here that his rest is a Sabbath rest of praise and festivity from which we cease from our works. His rest is a Sabbath rest. The word rest may be helpful to just mark the times the word rest is found in Hebrews 4 several times. And up to this point, it's been the same word. In the original, it's catapalsis, and it just really has in mind the idea of what you might think of when you think of rest. Cessation of activity. Stopping of work. Okay? We think of resting. We think of stopping our work. Stopping our activity. That's the general idea of that word. But you get to verse 9, and we have a different original word. Now, in your Bibles, most of your Bibles probably just has the same word, rest. Some of your translations may include Sabbath rest. If your translation has Sabbath rest, it's right on point. Because it's bringing forth the idea the writer is wanting to bring forward. Okay? So rest prior to verse 9 means this cessation or stopping of activity or work. And here in verse 9, it has in mind a Sabbath rest for God's people. One writer says this is God's unique personal rest in which the believers share. Another writer says that the word stresses the special activity of festivity and joy. Expressed in the adoration and praise of God. O'Brien says that that as he's speaking to the the different usage in verse 9. Thinking again a question. Why would the writer insert a different word here when he's been using this word all throughout? It must have been directed by the fact that it contained a nuance that's not found in that other word. Catapausis. There's something here the writer wants us to get. 
In the Old Testament and Jewish notions of the Sabbath, O'Brien goes on and says, not simply a day of cessation, a day of, of stopping of activity, but one in which rest and praise belong together. The word is sabbatismos. And sabbatismos stresses festivity and joy expressed in worship and praise of God. And it's in line with the Hebrews' picture of the future festive gathering in the heavenly Jerusalem. So friends, when we understand this, this is a far cry then from what gets advertised oftentimes from some about what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. Right? And you think about these pictures sometimes that we hear. Uh, images of having wings. Images of sitting on clouds plucking harps. Anybody ever heard those before? Okay. We're, we're, we're going to be playing a harp. Right? Well, the rest that awaits us, listen. The rest that awaits us is not a cessation of activity but a participation in God's original rest, which will include a celebration like no other. That's why we sing hymns that talk about what a day of rejoicing it will be, because it's going to be that. It's going to be a day of rejoicing, a festivity-like time of rejoicing and worshiping the King of Kings. I want you to notice verse 10, because I want you to see the present tense, the right now significance of entering God's rest as well. He says, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his own works as God did from his works. So having entered God's rest, we have ceased from our works in the same manner, the writer says, that God ceased from his work back on the seventh day of creation. So what does that mean? And what's the takeaway for us in that? We need to ask the question, why did God cease from his works on the seventh day? Why did he rest? It wasn't, listen, let's be real clear. It wasn't because he got tired. It wasn't because he was just bored and he couldn't find anything else to do. God was completely finished with creating the world as he designed it to be. He was done. He was done. So in what sense then are we who enter his rest, what, what sense do we cease from our works? As God ceased from his. Listen, this is so important for us. When we enter God's rest, we cease from our works and rely no longer on our performance for our standing with God. Because the work's been done. In Christ, it's done. Isn't that the unique aspect of Christianity? A lot of other religions talk about what you have to do. In Christ, it's been done. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. In 12, it talks about how we're to work out our salvation. But 13 says that God, it's God who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, For in him dwells the, all the fullness, in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Listen, and you are complete in him. In him, our union. We're complete in him, who's the head of all principality and power. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, familiar passage, but listen to it. Now, having heard much of Hebrews 4, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, listen, not of works, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Galatians 2, 20, Paul says to the church, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? How do I live now? By faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me with a cross and gave himself for me. Stedman writing of this verse, he says, The I no longer live has in mind now that I do not look for any achievements in my own efforts. And speaking to the Christ living in me, he says, the life I live and the things that I do are by faith. That is, done in dependence on the Son of God working in and through me. That's how I live now. And the Bible passage that helps us understand that and that abiding nature, remember which that first generation failed to do, the abiding nature, John 15, 5 says that apart from me, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. 
His rest is a Sabbath rest of praise and festivity from which we cease from our works. Look at the final verse, verse 11. We're about done. Hang in there. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Verse 1, verse 6, and verse 11 all serve as markers, really pointing to the same thing. Here in verse 11, this is the call. This is the charge. This is the finality of the, of the message preached here. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. We see that his rest remains available. It's entered by means of the gospel. His rest is for those who believe in Jesus. His rest is rooted in creation. It's predicated upon a sure promise. His rest is defined in verse 9 as a Sabbath rest of praise and festivity. And here in verse 11, we see that entering his rest demands urgent action. It demands urgent action, a response on our end in light of what's available to us. We've been told that his rest still stands. We've been told that some did not enter his rest, but because God promised it to be so, there awaits some yet to enter. And we've been given the fullness of this rest by hearing that it is a Sabbath rest of celebration and festivity and joy that awaits us in heaven. He's not just talking now about the promise of Canaan land. He's giving to us his word today saying there's something much greater than entering Canaan land. It's entering heaven land, the city not built by human hands. That's what's available. And it's been made available to you through this Messiah who has spoken in these last days. The final verse calls each of us to be diligent. Think about what it is to be diligent. We're to be diligent to enter God's rest. And holding up once again the rebellious generation as exhibit A on disobedience. The writer is calling his listener to take heed to the warning that's set forth in the text. The call to be diligent is a word that means... To hasten or to exert, to exert oneself. Think about work. When you do something with all of your might, you're exerting yourself. That's the idea behind the word, being diligent. Church, let us be diligent to enter God's rest. Make every effort in this direction. Press on to see that God is working in you and that you are living a crucified life in Jesus. I love the song we sang, near the cross, near the cross, be my glory forever. Near the cross. See, those of us who enter into God's rest, we ought to be living near the cross every day of our lives. Abide in Jesus, walk worthy of the Lord by regularly mixing faith with hearing the word of the Lord. One writer summarizes this very well. He says, God's true rest comes not through a Moses or a Joshua or a David. It comes through Jesus Christ. That's how it comes. Revelation 14, 13 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. You know, I read that and I think about that time yet to come and I, I'd like to, to end by giving you still a picture of how this all holds true for you today. What do we do now in light of this rest that's open and available to us? How does God's rest help us in the present? Thomas Lee asks the question, what kind of rest can believers enjoy? What kind of rest can they enjoy? He says, this rest is not merely the entrance into Canaan. It is the present experience with Christ in which the Lord provides his presence, his peace, and his joy to replace the labor and the heavy burdens of life. And with that, I turn to Matthew chapter 11 and read those words from Jesus 
which connect so well with Hebrews 4. Jesus says, come to me. The invitation. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will what? What's he say? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly. I am meek and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the writer of Hebrews is clearly setting before us today that God's rest still stands. And the rest that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 11 is the rest that's offered right here in Hebrews chapter 4. This is the rest that culminates in a Sabbath-like spirit of celebration and festivity, worshiping God and enjoying His favor in His presence. Be diligent to enter God's rest. He offers you His yoke, which is easy, and His burden, which is light. This is good news. Taking what He has to offer, the promise is that you will find rest for your souls. Not rest from your earthly trials necessarily. Things might get worse instead of better here on earth. But taking Jesus up on his offer to come to him, you will find rest for your souls. Remember Augustine says that our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Friends, have you found such rest this morning? The king has issued the invite. Come, he says, come to me. And in his mercy, the door to enter his rest is still standing open. Another today is available. Do not harden your hearts, friends. Stedman says that delay hardens the heart. Delay hardens the heart, especially when we are fully aware that we have heard the voice of God. Entering God's rest, you will find rest for your souls. And think about it. What a great way to live your life. To come to the end. And know that it is well with my soul. Great way to live. You know, life might be one trial after another. Your life might look like an absolute disaster in the eyes of the world. You might hit some of the, the deepest deeps, the lows in, in your life. You might lose a loved one. You might lose your job. You might find out news and one day coming forward that someone that you love has a limited time to live. But if things are well with your soul, you can yet rejoice knowing that Christ is your strength and the one who provides your soul with rest. Let us then be diligent to enter his rest while it is still today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have provided in your mercy still today an open door. And God, I don't know about everyone here in the chairs today, but I pray that each one would be diligent to enter this rest that's been spoken of in Hebrews 4. That with all of our might, with all of our strength, we would be diligent to enter this rest. That, Father, we would learn from the history lesson of the wilderness generation. Father, we see examples all around us of, of how people in this world are forsaking you. People in this world are going the other direction. There's a lot of people in this world that are thumbing their nose at you. They don't want anything to do with your word. They're not walking according to your word. They're not even attempting to walk according to your word. But Lord, you've given to us much. You've given to us your word. And those of us who do know your word, those of us who've had the gospel preached, it's important and it's imperative that we mix faith with what we hear. That we walk by faith. That we hold on to you. That we walk and we take a step with the light that you give. And we trust in you knowing that when we take that step, 
with the light that you give, that you will provide an additional step. You will provide an additional light. And with that, Lord, I pray we would keep walking. We would keep stepping out with you. Father, we look forward to the day of this ultimate rest, this enjoying the Sabbath rest that's spoken of here in the text. We thank you, Lord, that from the beginning, back in the days of creation, you set this in place with the idea of pointing forward to a time when you would invite your people to join you in this rest of yours. And I pray that right now we would be living in such a way that would reflect a life of persevering, a life of enduring all the way to the end. That regardless of whatever trials may be happening, whatever circumstances that are going on in our lives, Lord, that we would have an eye and an ear and a heart and a mind that's bent toward a heavenly home. Help us, Lord, to live this way. To take what we hear from your word and to walk by faith. And to rejoice in these days that you've given to us. I pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.